If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Esther, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 and 9 through 10, and then chapter 9, verses 20 through 22. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. On the second day, as they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have won your favor, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me. That is my petition, and the lives of my people. That is my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have held my peace, but no enemy can compensate for this damage to the king. Then King Azaharis said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has presumed to do this? Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Look, the very gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, stands at Haman's house fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the anger of the king abated. And now over to chapter 9, verses 20 through 22. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Azaharis, both near and far, enjoining them that they should keep the 14th day of the month Adar, and also the 15th day of the same month, year by year, as the days on which the Jews gained relief from their enemies, and as the month that they had been turned that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and presents to the poor. Here ends the reading inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. The lectionary really makes some big assumptions this morning. The reading is just 11 verses, even though the book of Esther itself is 10 chapters long. It is odd, too, since the lectionary only has us read from the book of Esther once in the three-year lectionary cycle. So unless the preacher deviates from the suggested text, we won't read from Esther again until 2021. Apparently, the lectionary is hoping you read your Bible 
other than just at church. The lectionary assumes we already know the story. That's why the reading was so clunky. Six verses here, one, two, skip a few, then jump to chapter nine to pick up a couple of satisfying concluding sentences to tie it up in a nice little bow. I mean, this is generally how people like their Bible stories. Clean lines, a moral, a clear point. The lectionary is really good at helping us with this. But for the good of the order, I'll do a quick recap. The book opens with Queen Vashti refusing to parade herself in front of the king's guests. This infuriates the king and terrifies the court officials who are very concerned that the disobedience of the queen will inspire all women to disobey their husbands. And we can't have that. <laughs> they recommend the king remove her and we never hear from Queen Vashti again. The king immediately sets about finding a new, more compliant queen by choosing between beautiful young virgins who have been collected from around the country. Enter Mordecai, a Jew who works as a guard in the king's palace. He is raising his orphan niece, Esther. Mordecai sees the vacancy of the queen as an opportunity and enters Esther in the contest, giving her the same kind of advice Reba has mama give fancy. <laughs> Just be nice to the gentleman fancy and they'll be nice to you. When Esther is selected as queen, Mordecai offers the infamous line, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. In the meantime, the king has also promoted an anti-Jewish advisor named Haman, who convinces the king to order a genocide against all the Jews living in the Persian Empire. Earlier, we heard the cliff notes of how this crisis is averted. Esther's advocacy on behalf of the Jewish people saves them from annihilation, and Haman is permanently removed as a threat to their well-being. I will confess that a month ago, I was looking forward to preaching from Esther. This story is a rich one. There are so many possibilities, not the least of which is a warning against the dangers of nationalism. So timely a topic right now. In October of 2017, author Sasha Palauko-Saransky warned us in her New York Times commentary that anti-Semitic and xenophobic movements did not disappear from Europe after the liberation of Auschwitz, just as white supremacist groups have lurked beneath the surface of American politics ever since the Emancipation Proclamation. What has changed is that these groups have now been stirred from their slumber by savvy politicians seeking to stoke anger towards immigrants, refugees, and racial minorities for their own benefit. Leaders from Donald Trump to Francis Marine Le Pen have validated the worldview of these groups, implicitly and explicitly encouraging them to promote their hateful opinions openly. As a result, ideas that were once marginal have now gone mainstream. Had we listened to her warning, Charlottesville wouldn't have seemed so surprising. So yes, a scripture that warns us against the tragedy of nationalism would make for a good sermon for such a time as this. 
But over the last two weeks, the Supreme Court nomination hearings of Judge Brett Kavanaugh took a turn. The testimony of Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's testimony as a sexual assault survivor reflected the experience of so many women and men, the weight of coming forward, the fear having to relive the terror, being blamed for not coming forward immediately, then being blamed for coming forward. We witnessed how a woman must hit all her marks in order to be believed as credible, while a man must meet no such standard and can instead yell about how much he loves beer and still be in the running for the promotion of a lifetime. All of this complicated the task of preaching for me and for many other women preachers. I alluded to this a little last week when I noted that my clergy sisters and I are often unsure what to do when the text is directed at women or when female characters play a significant role or when traditional interpretation has oppressed women. And this is because I am regularly warned not to preach too often about sexism or women's issue, lest I preach myself into a box. It is as if they are unaware just how many women have been denied this box. But still, to preach a second week in a row on quote-unquote women's issues would mean, at the very least, consequences in the receiving line after service. <laughs> to be honest, by last Tuesday, it had already been a long week. After I made a public statement affirming the LGBTQ community, two different men who I don't know sent me over a hundred lines of anti-LGBTQ and anti-woman messages, which were disturbing enough for my spouse to encourage me to report them. This is not unusual. It is part of being a pastor of an open and affirming peace and justice congregation and also because I am a female preacher who writes about reproductive health care and immigration rights, among other things. I am unshakably proud to be both. But the harassment that comes with it can be wearisome. If you are confused about why women seem so angry, it likely has something to do with having to deal with that kind of harassment on a regular basis. So by Wednesday, I did not relish the idea of trying to be gracious about the inevitable benevolent sexism quips post-Sunday sermon. But on Thursday, Dr. Blasey Ford said, I'll lean in. So I will too. To read through the book of Esther using feminist hermeneutics is to recognize a story that is often used as an example of women's empowerment as really a masterclass in the challenge of being a woman. It would actually require a sermon series to go through all the examples in the book of Esther. So for the purposes of today, I'm only going to give one example, but it is a significant one. Like Dr. Blasey Ford, Esther must strike just 
the right tone if she is to survive. Smart, but not aloof. Collected, but not cold. She must play to the personalities of the men in charge. It's impossible to catch if you're only reading the lectionary selection because it only highlights the last move in Esther's strategy. Before we get to today's reading, Esther actually has called for a three-day fast. And after three days of fasting, Esther appears in the inner courtyard of the palace wearing her royal clothes. By doing so, she risks her life because there is a law that says that anyone who enters the inner courtyard may be put to death if the king does not extend his royal scepter. But when the king sees Esther, he not only extends his scepter, he rashly offers her anything, even half the kingdom. With this offer on the table, a less insightful person than Esther may simply have seized the moment to ask for the king to rescind Haman's death order concerning the Jews. Yet Esther knows that the danger to her people lies not only in the specific decree commanding their extermination, but also in the man who issued the decree in the first place. Ethnic hatred cannot be defeated merely by the reversal of one policy. It must be rooted out at its source. In her measured response, Esther asks for the king and Haman to join her for the feast. And as they sit drinking wine together, the king again tells Esther that he will give her anything she asks, even up to half of the kingdom. Yet again, Esther demurs. Instead, she invites the king and Haman to yet another banquet the following day. So on this second day, after three days of fasting, at this final banquet with Haman and Esther and the king, the king asks Esther for the third time, what is your wish, Queen Esther? I'll give it to you. I'll do anything, even give you half the kingdom. Esther yet again approaches her request cautiously calculating how to elicit the desired response from the king. Esther responds carefully, If it pleases the king, and if the king wishes, give me my life, that's my wish, and the lives of my people too, that's my desire. As the king has no doubt expected Esther to ask for something of material value, up to half the kingdom, her plea for her life and the life of her people must have struck an emotional chord with him, particularly in light of the hospitality she has shown the previous two days. Yet, if we're reading closely, we see that Esther couches her request not in emotional terms, but in economic ones. She continues, we have been sold, I and my people, to be wiped out, killed, and destroyed. If we had simply been sold as slaves, I would have said nothing. But no enemy can compensate the king for this kind of damage. Even when pleading for her life, Esther places the king's needs first, appealing not to his emotions, but to his profit margins. She does not argue that she matters, for she knows that's not the most important thing to him. 
sounds familiar. Notably, Esther hasn't mentioned Haman at all. She could have accused him directly, but such an accusation would likely raise defensiveness in the king, whose instinct would have been to defend his second-in-command. Astutely, Esther refrains from naming Haman, allowing the king to pass judgment on an unnamed perpetrator. He cries, who is this person, and where is he? Who would do such a thing? Esther, yet again, responds carefully, saying, a man who hates an enemy, before finally declaring, this wicked Haman. Esther's masterful plan finally reaches its culmination with the identification of Haman. It has taken three days of fasting and two days of patient indirection, but by the time Esther finally names Haman, his fate is sealed. In a rather unbelievable maneuver, Esther manages not only to save her people and herself, she removes the ideology that would have continued to threaten them all. Perhaps if the church had been preaching from a feminist hermeneutic these last 2,000 years, women wouldn't still be required to perform such mental and emotional gymnastics to stop evil. At least, at least we know we come from a long line of women who are willing to risk it all for the work of justice. A sermon for such a time as this, indeed. As we look for heaven in the midst of this hell, the words of women of color will save us. A week or so ago, author and legal scholar Michelle Alexander wrote a column I'm going to quote extensively. Since the beginning of the Trump administration, it seems there has been a new crisis roiling our nation every day, a new jaw-dropping allegation of corruption, a new wave of repression at the border, another nod to white nationalism or blatant misogyny, another attack on basic civil rights, freedom of the press, or truth itself. Invariably, these disturbing events are punctuated by Trump's predictable yet repugnant Twitter rants. The disorienting nature of Trump's presidency has already managed to obscure what should be an obvious fact. Viewed from the broad sweep of history, Donald Trump is the resistance. We are not. Those of us who are committed to the radical evolution of American democracy are not merely resisting an unwanted reality. To the contrary, the struggle for human freedom and dignity extends back centuries and is likely to continue for generations to come. In the words of Vincent Harding, one of the great yet lesser known heroes of the black freedom struggle, the long, continuous yearning and reaching toward freedom flows throughout history like a river sometimes powerful, tumultuous, and roiling with life, at other times meandering and turgid, covered with the ice and snow of seemingly endless winters, all too often streaked and running with blood. Harding was speaking about black movements for liberation in America 
but the metaphor applies equally well to the global struggle for human dignity and freedom. The Guatemalan mother, desperately fleeing poverty and violence in her home country, stands at the border, young child in her arms, yearning for freedom no less than the American mother, hundreds of miles away, who puts her hands to the plexiglass in the prison visiting room, desperate to hug her child who sits quietly on the other side. The movements that have arisen to honor the dignity of both women, movements to end mass incarceration and mass deportation, are separate streams feeding the same river. Donald Trump's election represents a surge of resistance to this rapidly swelling river, an effort to build not just a wall, but a dam. A new nation is struggling to be born, a multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-faith, egalitarian democracy in which every life and every voice truly matters. In recent years, we've seen glimpses of this new nation at Standing Rock, in the streets of Ferguson, in the eyes of dreamers, in the voice of teenagers from Parkland and Chicago, as well as at LGBTQ pride celebrations, the Women's March, and the camps at Occupy Wall Street. Confederate statues are coming down as new memorials are going up in Montgomery, Alabama and beyond, honoring victims of lynching as well as the courageous souls who fought for the abolition of slavery and the end of Jim Crow. If we pause long enough and consider where we stand in relationship to the centuries-long quest to create a truly equitable democracy, we may be able to see that the revolutionary river that brought us this far just might be the only thing that could possibly carry us to a place where we all belong. Every leap forward for American democracy, from slavery's abolition, to women's suffrage, to minimum wage laws, to the Civil Rights Act, to gay marriage, has been traceable to the revolutionary river, not the resistance. In fact, the whole of American history can be described as a struggle between those who truly embrace the revolutionary idea of freedom, equality, and justice for all, and those who resist it. One might wonder whether it matters in the end, whether we consider ourselves members of the resistance or part of the revolutionary river. Can't we be both? The answer, I think, is yes and no. Yes, of course, we can and must resist the horrors of the current administration. Thousands of lives depend on us doing what we can to mitigate the harm to our fellow humans and the planet we share. But the mindset of the resistance is slippery and dangerous. There's a reason marchers in the black freedom struggle sang, we shall overcome, rather than chanting, we shall resist. Their goal was to overcome a racial caste system and to end it and to create a new nation, a beloved community. I am deeply grateful to Michelle Alexander for this 
reframing and for this reminder. We are not simply resisting. We are reimagining, creating, building, redrawing, marching, designing, organizing, and leaning into a new reality, one that condemns the pervasive patriarchal power structures that keep women silenced, underpaid, underrepresented, exploited, denigrated, shamed, and abused. A new reality that names, repents from, and actively fights white supremacy and privilege in all its forms. A new reality that refuses to dehumanize immigrants and refugees. One that affirms and celebrates equality for LGBTQ folk. A reality that offers health care, not wealth care, restoration, not retribution. A reality that insists that all of us matter. All of us. Do not mistake this hope for lack of rage or righteous fury. Do not mistake it for lack of grief and fear. It is all bound up together. So let your hearts not grow weary, beloveds. Today, people of faith and goodwill will stand and work for justice, systemic change, and political integrity, and do so more strategically and more intensely than ever. For such a time as this, We'll lean in. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Waukee, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m., with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.